0: This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Carlo Rovelli is one of the most amazing writers and beautiful writers of physics that I have ever read and I've ever met. He's written a book, Helgoland, which is about the whole history of the quantum mechanics revolution. And I think, honestly, during this podcast, we created a unified theory, which unified classical physics with quantum mechanics, you guys can decide. One thing I thought was interesting about his last book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, or actually this was two books ago, it was such a well-written book about the deep questions of science that it actually outsold Fifty Shades of Grey in Italy, which is certainly an amazing accomplishment that a book about physics would outsell a a book, uh, the highest-selling soft pornography book in history. But I learned so much in this podcast and from reading his book about I've never really understood what quantum mechanics is and what the issues were. And now I have a much tighter grasp of it. Here's Carlo Rovelli, one of the most prominent writers and physicists of this generation. Carlo Rovelli, and I'll do an intro later, but first thing I wanna say, you wrote this great book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, several years ago, and now you have a new book out, Helgoland, which um, is all about quantum mechanics, and in particular, your your specific theories of quantum mechanics, but you start off with the entire history of quantum mechanics, and in fact, how um, Heisenberg was on, I think it was Heisenberg was on a country I never heard of, or an island I never heard of, Helgoland, I was wondering what Helgoland referred to until you started talking about it in the book. But that's essentially this basically now destroyed island that quantum mechanics started. And also the place, I guess, where uh, the Allies detonated all of their leftover explosives after World War II. That's right. <laughs> so does the island even exist anymore? It was like 3,500 tons of TNT, you said. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the ALS survived. It changed a little bit, but it survived indeed. So it's still there, there are people actually living there. It's very teeny, but you can go and visit. And it's still uh, arid, no, little trees or nothing,
0: rocks, ocean, why did, it's very wild. Why did Heisenberg go there? And we're gonna get into your fascinating theories about quantum mechanics, which finally made me understand it in a completely different way. But why did he go to Helgoland? The most
1: trivial of reasons, because he suffered some allergy. Uh, So it was a strong case of allergy from pollen and stuff. So he wanted to go to, his doctor told him to go to a place without trees. And that's a perfect thing because it's it's an island without trees in the middle of the ocean. So there's no pollen. It's very good if you suffer allergy. Uh, So that's one reason. I I think um, it's an island full of legends. There was pirates and things like that and a pirate that uh, the young Eisenberg as a kid uh, loved, um, Storybrooke, something like that. Uh, so maybe that was in his mind also. But I think mostly also because he wanted to be
0: alone and do his science, do his calculations. And it started off this huge revolution in science, which, as you point out, has is one of the few theories that is in, in science that has never been disproven at all. But we still don't know... W- why it necessarily exists the way it does? It kind of describes the world in a very strange way, as opposed to classical physics or even Einstein's theory of relativity. But I feel like, and and I wanna I wanna try to explain your book just so you could tell me if I am getting it correctly. So the idea is, in in, in quantum mechanics, there's this notion of uh, electrons or very small particles are not don't work by the rules of classical mechanics. So if I in classical physics by, you know, discovered by Isaac Newton, if I throw a baseball, the laws of physics determine the trajectory, where it's gonna land, you, you know, the gra- how gravity affects it, how planets orbit and so on. Whereas in quantum mechanics, this is all out the window and you can't possibly know the position and velocity of a very tiny particle Uh, until you observe it. Before then, it could be anything. Exactly. But then what you explain, which is very fascinating, and I never thought of this is, is that it's not because it's in multiple states at the same time, but it's because we all observe, it's all, every object in the universe, even tiny, tiny particles are all known or measured relative to something else. So like, let's say you and I are standing in front of a tree you will perceive it in a different way than i will which tree is real your tree or my tree they're both real so it's in in the same way small particles act the same way they they change depending on how they are observed and who observes them exactly yeah,
1: well it's great synthesis of the main idea very 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 good and very clear um,
0: and, and and i have one further question about this uh, is that lar- so they always say quantum mechanics only applies to very very small particles like Things like electrons or quarks or whatever, and not big uh, objects like like a human or a tree or a house. And and I, your book made me think that actually they're all it, it, it's the same thing actually because obviously many things are observing you. All the whole universe around you is observing you. So there's a bil- billions of things potentially observing who you are. So that's why quantum mechanics doesn't quite. Like it's not like you're in two multiple states at the same time because billions of objects around you are observing you, whereas electrons, in a sense, are very lonely. Nothing's observing them. Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. I like it. I'm going to use this metaphor. Yes. <laughs> you're welcome to it. I was thinking that 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 you would appreciate that actually.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but they be, they become quantum mechanically obviously quantum mechanically, but they're
0: very lonely. <laughs> yes, it means mean the science of quantum mechanics itself applies to small particles. Because there's nothing around them. There's like electrons are basically, you know, an atom is mostly like 99.9 percent empty, other than these electrons that are very, very tiny orbiting around it. But, but help me understand from the beginning because it is so strange quantum mechanics. And you even refer to the fact. I think it was Niels Bohr who says anyone who understands quantum mechanics doesn't understand quantum mechanics. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was Feynman. Yeah, yeah. If you think you, nobody understands quantum mechanics, essentially, he said, yeah.
0: So, so, so. What what is it really like? What what the what is what is it? Why is it so strange?
1: Well, it's, I think you, you you made a great synthesis. Uh, somehow, the the old way we had uh, uh, of describing nature into so objects that uh, push it and pulled by forces, and we we describe how they move. Every moment, we say where they are and the, and what their color, what their shape, what their orientation, the energy, whatever you want. Uh, it just doesn't work anymore for, for small things. Uh, people tried and tried and tried, it doesn't work. And then Heisenberg on this island came out just, you know, sort of out of the blue, trying to solve how the electron moves along the atoms with a strange calculus and uh, which uh, works the way you say. It doesn't describe how the electron is. It describes how uh, it affects something else, how it interacts with something else. And so, that works. So it's like nature is not a lot of things separated alone, but it's, it's how things affect one another. So it's not just how I observe it or you observe it. Is that how anything else interacts with it. But the point is that, uh, um, as you're saying, the electron with respect to one thing and the electron with respect to the other thing don't necessarily agree. So we cannot just say the electron is like this or like that. And for big things... You said it very clearly. For big things, like a tree, it's true that there is a tree respect to me, a tree respect to you. But, you know, the distinction is so small that we don't see it. It's, a, it's just quantum things. It's a teeny, it, teeny, teeny
0: discrepancy. It seems like the larger something is, the more objectively real it is in the way we understand re- reality.
1: Yeah, the larger something is, the more uh, objectively real it is in the way we understand reality. What matters is not size uh, or weight. Uh, What matters really is the number of components it has. Say roughly the number of atoms is is made. The physicists say the number of degrees of freedom. Because there are so many little, little things moving. In in a tree, there are, you know, zillions and zillions of atoms moving around and interacting. Um, And we don't see the details. We only see the tree. So the discrepancy between your picture and my picture is lost in this uh, uh, approximate picture of the tree. So we come up with a common... We don't have have to say the tree with respect to you or the tree with respect to me. We just say the tree is there, is brown, is is tall, 20 meters, whatever, uh, period. Um, But if we could measure things extremely precisely, uh, either the tree, because everything is quantum mechanical, ultimately... Uh, we, we will find out that there's no way to give a, a, a clean cut Newtonian complete description of, of, of the tree because it then when you go detail, it really breaks up in the tree with respect to me, the tree respect to you, all the tree respect to the other tree next to each, which it touches
0: So so you so so explain then what like why is it that we can't really observe the location and I guess velocity of an electron Without changing it right at the same time is it is it because of our and you explain this in the book but it, but I was always kind of dumbfounded by the fact that does our ability to observe something change it which is what I originally thought quantum mechanics was until I read your book
1: um,
0: it is true
1: that when you observe when you observe something we change it because the only way to observe something is to interact with it and uh, uh, to 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 exchange some energy in a sense with it, so you're disturbing something by by observing it. But somehow, there was a time in which, uh, uh, in fact, early in the 30s, in which people thought that that's it. Um, what only what quantum mechanics tell us is only the fact that uh, since there is a sort of granularity, you cannot have a super delicate thing, fingers to touch things without um, without disturbing them. Uh, because, uh, because you cannot do things arbitrarily, uh, delicately. But that's not sufficient. That doesn't uh, suffice to explain what happened in quantum theory because it's more radical. You know, it's, uh, it's really that things have no qualities by themselves. They only have qualities in interacting with something else. And if you try to, to, to ass- assign qualities when they're not interacting, uh, you just get to funny contradictions. It just doesn't work. The quintessential thing is that, you know, let's go back to the the small things, the, the ones which are lonely, <laughs> so they behave more quantum mechanically because they have less things to interact. And, and think of an electron. Uh, one of the funniest behavior of the electron is that if you have a wall with two 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 doors, two holes, and the electron goes from one room to the other room, you can compute how it goes. I mean, in physics, you can write equations and you say it goes here and arrives here in this time, at this place, exactly, okay? But then you have to ask, uh, you say, I see it here, and then I see the other side, which holes it went through. And then it's something absolutely strange, because if you assume it went through one hole, okay, you get some conclusion. If you assume you get to the other hole, you get another conclusion, but neither things are done by the electron. It's like it goes through both holes, so what you do in the, in the mathematics is this sense of using waves. So you think of the electron, is a little ball, and then it opens up in a sort of waves, it goes through both holes. And then you say, ah, oh, I have understood the electron is a wave. No, it's not a wave, because when you see, you don't see a wave, you just see a particle in one point. But the actual electron is only when you saw it here or when you saw it there, or when you interacted with something here, and when you hit the, hit the screen there. In between, it doesn't have a position by itself. It's everywhere.
0: And why is that?
1: Well, you should ask God, not me, this. I mean, that's the way he or she or him or whoever or not or nobody <laughs> put out things. We 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 little humans, we little creatures with limited intelligence. The only thing we can do is to look around and say, wow, wow that's the way they are.
0: That's the way nature is. And so in the book you describe uh, quantum entanglement. You know, which is this idea that if you take kind of the exact two twin particles that are exactly the same and they start off at the same point and you send them off in different directions at the speed of light or whatever, and then you observe one of them, the other faster than the speed of light will change because you observed the first one. And w- what's happening there? Because you describe in the, in the book, and then this is the one part of the book I had a little difficulty with, but, but describe what's happening with int- quantum entanglement.
1: It's not an easy phenomenon,
0: quantum entanglement. It's a tricky phenomenon.
1: And uh, that's why I don't, I don't describe it at the beginning of the book. I wait b- before putting up other ideas to, to, to try to explain it. It's, it's very tricky. Because, uh, it's, as, as you say, quantum entangled is, is the fact that two, two different objects, when they're separated, there's a sort of relation between them. But that relation is not easy. You see... Um, the usual thing we say is that you know, if if you if you look at one uh, instantaneously, you know something about the other, but that's that's trivial. No, if you if I send two gloves, uh, one to you and one in Beijing, uh, you know my two gloves, and you open the box and you see the right gloves, you immediately know that the one in Beijing is, is 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 the left one. So all right, so you learn something far away by looking something here. But the point is that it's more subtle because uh, uh, quantum theory allows the globe that you receive to be neither right nor left, like the electron that goes neither through one, one hole nor through the other hole. So in some sense, the globe that you receive is a quantum object doesn't know if it is right or left, it's both. And the funny thing is that, all right, so you, you, when it interacts with you, it sort of becomes right and left, but the other one, the other side, uh, decides consistently. So if you look, see right, the other is left, and see the rest are the right. So how do they talk to one another? It's, do they communicate instantaneously? At the beginning, people thought, okay, they communicate instantaneously. Quantum mechanics tell us uh, that there is sort of faster-than-light communication from two things uh, far away. So they, somebody in the U.S. Uh, deposited uh, a patent at the patent office uh, for faster-than-light communication in the 40s as a war. It was very, very useful to have faster-than-light communication. But it doesn't work. You cannot use this to send messages. In mm-hmm. fact, there were theorems later on based on quantum mechanics. saying no, no, no. They do not really uh, communicate to one another, the, the, the two entangled quantum systems. Something else which is going on. And what is going on is subtle. You see, uh, if you are here and you open your quantum glove, for you, On the other side, nothing has happened. To check that they're consistent, you have to wait for some information to get to you. It's only when the information gets to you that it takes time to get to you. It's only at that point uh, that with respect to you, the reality of the other globe becomes determinate. So the key is not that they're talking to one another instantaneously. The key is that uh, reality is relative. So what happened there... It's not true with respect to you until the information gets to you.
0: So, so in a communication sense, like when this guy filed patents for quantum com- communication, you don't really know which side is doing the communicating until you actually talk to each other in some other way.
1: That's right. There is no communication. There's absolutely no communication between the two sides. In a very strong sense, in fact... Uh, Uh, you know, because of relativity, you you can imagine that the two sides, one happened first and the other happened second, or vice versa. And and the result is the same, which means it's not a signal going from one to the other or from the other to to one. There's no signal going through, zero. In fact, if there was a signal, we could use it to send signals, but we can't. There's no way using entanglement to send signals. So um, it's something far more subtle which tell us that reality is not you know gloves that know if they're left or right, the reality could be that a glove doesn't know if it is rest or or more precisely an electron doesn't know if the spin is up or down uh it's indeterminate
0: so so your your idea and theories and and you present them very well in this book is that everything all of reality, particularly at that small quantum level is every measurement is relative to to other things so we measure something speed relative to our knowledge of what speed is and how we're measuring it and and so on so so something speed can't be known because if it's not measured particularly at that level it's relative to nothing so we don't know
1: that's correct and uh, uh, what things are relative to is other things uh not necessarily a human, or a physicist, or a, or a cat, or, or a consciousness—properties uh, uh, of objects are always relative to other properties of objects, which is not such a revolutionary thinking because we knew, we know, we knew before that there were some quantities uh, which are only well understood in a relative sense. For instance, velocity—we we always knew that velocity is relative, right? Uh, If you say, don't move, so you should have velocity zero. I mean, imagine that a a mother is with a kid on a train and says to the kid, don't move. She does not mean that the kid should jump out of the train and not move with respect to the earth, right? She (laughs) means don't move with respect to the train. So uh, put your velocity to zero with respect to the train. Uh, which means keep a high velocity with respect to the Earth and a higher velocity with respect to the sun and a higher velocity with respect to the galaxy. So nothing has a velocity by itself. Velocity, it's a property of an object that only makes sense relative to another object. And in a sense, quantum mechanics is a discovery that it's all like that. It's uh, all properties are always relative to, to, between two objects, which is a shocking uh, discovery at the fundamental level of physics, I think it's unavoidable. There are, let, me, let, me, let me frame a little bit uh, better this. Quantum mechanics is strange. And uh, to make sense of it, you have to do something radical one way or the other. So there are alternatives, but they're even more radical. Like, you know, believing there are other words uh, parallel worlds were. One thing happened and in another world there's another you that sees something different. Even that's even more radical. So you can do even more radical things. That seemed to me the more reasonable and the less radical conclusion to make sense of quantum theory.
0: You know, what about absolute things? Like, you know, the speed of light is supposed to be absolute, it never changes no matter. Who, um, although, although I guess Einstein disputes that, right? So he he says yes if you measure it in terms of miles per hour, the speed of light has an absolute, or miles per second, the speed of light has an absolute measurement. But still, if I'm observing it, depending on how fast I'm moving, I'm seeing the speed of light at a different speed. And that's his, roughly his theory of relativity. Quantum mechanics is not telling, oh, everything is relative, nothing is well-defined.
1: It's very specific. The, if you have an object, an object that can move, an object that can change its properties in time, you know, but you even need an object. Um, the properties of these objects are not in this object, are relative to something else. I mean, take an object, take a pen, okay? This pen is blue. Uh, in a sense, you know, what does it mean that the pen is blue? It's not a property of the pen, right? It's a property of the way the pen interacts with the light, with my eyes, with my brain. It's, it, blue is a complicated story. It's not just there. Animals don't see this blue. The, the blue, red, the yellow, is, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a human thing. Uh, uh, animals see different set of colors, less usually, so some even more. So to understand blue, you have to, to to take into account various stories. And what is the velocity of this pen? Well, with respect to me, zero. It doesn't move, but with respect to the sun, it's moving at 10 kilometers per second, super fast. So again, velocity is relatively something else. And quantum mechanics is is that uh, discovery that these properties, the things that can change, you know, velocity can change, the color can change, can paint it, these properties are are always relative. Uh, It does not mean that in the description of the world that we have, there aren't things that, as far as we know, are fixed. Uh, You know, in some sense, the velocity of light, maximum velocity of things is fixed, or the mass of a particle is fixed, it doesn't change. Um... Remember, science is not about getting to the ultimate reality. Science is about uh, making the most credible story to understand and to manage, to deal with nature, with with the world, with us, uh, as far as we have understood so far. So uh, we learn things, and we learn things which are true, right? The the earth is round, the earth moves. Uh, But the point is not uh science is not telling us look uh this is truth with a capital t science is telling uh, you know
0: we have learned something more and then maybe we'll learn something even more we don't know and so so what does this mean philosophically and towards science this idea that small particles are always observed relative to something else what does this mean for classical physics but what does this mean it feels like this means something philosophically. And I know you even yeah. refer to, in the book, to there's a lot of nonsense philosophy when it comes to quantum mechanics. But for you, what does this mean? Like, how is this important to science?
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of nonsense, blah, 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 about quantum mechanics. That's right. Including quantum medicine, you know, quantum groups, whatever. Um, but... The, uh, the, the, the the boundary between science and philosophy, it's not a, sh- a clear-cut boundary. Heisenberg, who invented quantum theory, who wrote equations of quantum theory, was deeply influenced by philosophy. And so was Einstein, and so was Newton, and so was Maxwell, Boltzmann. All the great physicists that, uh, uh, read philosophy and, uh, and uh, were inspired by philosophical idea. Of course, philosophy, philosophy, science, physics is physics, two different disciplines. But there's a continuous... No issue one another, uh, because the philosophers want to know what we have, what scientists have learned about the world to to not to say stupid things, and the and the scientists uh, use philosophical ideas to open the mind, to get out of habits of thinking. Yeah, that's what Heisenberg was good succeeded. He said, uh, in fact, it's a philosopher Ernst Mach who who inspired him by telling essentially in his writing to him. Uh, don't take so seriously that matter is necessarily little stones moving through trajectories. Who knows? That is a way it has worked for thinking nature, but maybe there's a better way of thinking nature. So it, philosophy frees scientists to think more, more openly, but also philosophy provides... Um, um, conceptual tools for thinking, it allows us to give uh, give us uh, the tools for thinking. And uh, in the book, I talk about philosophy. I talk about the philosophers who influenced quantum mechanics, but I also talked about the philosophers who helped us and, and me to see more clearly. And uh, one of the, I have a full chapter on, on him, uh, uh, of the extraordinary philosophers who I think is relevant here not because he knew quantum mechanics, obviously did not know anything about quantum mechanics, but because he had some ideas that we can use. Uh, It's not from the Western civilization, it's from India, and is a classic, super well-known in Eastern uh, philosophy, is Nagarjuna. This is a a Buddhist, uh, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest thinkers like Plato or Aristotle in the Western traditions, uh, he lived in the second century in India. And uh, he wrote a book which I read is extraordinary. And it has the idea, the book is centered on the idea that you better think of reality in terms of interdependence of things and not of things by themselves. He has a very strong way of putting it. He said a thing by itself doesn't exist. In his language, this it is empty. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, period. It means that it doesn't exist by itself. It exists because it interacts with the other, because it is together with the other. It is is supported by the other. It exists in relation to the others. So there is interdependence. uh, And he argues that very eloquently. Um, And uh, I think it offers offers us uh, a a possible metaphysics uh, which is consistent with our understanding of quantum theory. It doesn't help us to solve, you know, compute the next laser or the next quantum device but it gives us a way of thinking of what actually we're doing when we do this calculation this prediction we go in the lab and build machines with quantum theory
0: but what's the implications of this like let's say yes it's true that everything can only be def- be defined relative to other things and 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 large objects again appear like objective reality not because they are but because there are billions of things yeah. that are confirming its existence as opposed yep. to very small things, which don't have anything confirming its existence so what 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 are, what are the what's the use of this what's the implications of this in terms of how we think about the world and our lives and 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 have science
1: well look <clears throat> about how we go around in our lives, nothing <laughs> <laughs> I wake up in the morning, brush my teeth uh whether or not you know electrons are or particles, or waves or, n- or neither um but you could say the same about, you know, black holes. We discovered black holes, what changed in our life? Nothing. Um, or uh, even strong scientific discoveries, like Darwin. Darwin discovered that, you know, me and uh, uh, that rabbit which is running in, in the lawn, we have common ancestors. Well, so what? I mean, I just live my life. But these discoveries, these big discoveries, change the way we think about themse- ourselves. You know, I think... Um, uh, so, so the implications are, lo- are larger I think it change our perspective and uh, look one thing which I it's not direct it's indirect but one thing that I find strongly related to that is that if all things exist in relation to something else so am I right so I'm not thinking of myself you know if I sit on on the chair, I start thinking, I don't think myself as an entity. I am a set of relation to the other things. I think it's a better way of thinking about yourself, ourselves. First of all, it's less scaring uh, ourself. I mean, and, and there, we are relations, we're physical relations, psychological relations, emotional relations, social relations, mental relations, uh, chemical relations. We're all this complicated stuff going on. No? Once again, uh, you know, then I go out and have a fight with my girlfriend. It doesn't, it does not, doesn't make me wise particularly, or anything. But I think it 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 gives a a, a little bit wiser perspective on ourselves, and it may even help in big scientific problems which are open. One one chapter of my book, uh, at the end, uh, I ask. Uh, does this story help us anyway understanding what is consciousness, what is a subjective uh, perspective, which is one big discussion going on now in, in, in physics, in philosophy, in neurosciences, uh, in many disciplines? Uh, I think it does. Not because, again, not because uh, we are quantum stuff. Uh, there's no magic here. But because uh, we are not entities either. I mean, reality is not about little stones bouncing around. Uh, and then how, how is it possible a little stone bouncing around makes my soul? Okay. Well, reality is complicated. Reality is an interaction between stuff, become complicated stuff. Okay, and I'm a complicated stuff interacting with the rest of reality. That's what I am. So it's less surprising that uh, out of physics you can have uh, us thinking, loving, and doing all these kind of things that we do, taking decisions. Uh, it, It all makes all more coherent. Then of course you know the neuroscientists have to do their job and understanding how the neuron works. The psychologists have to do their job and understanding how we, we have emotions and so on and so forth. So it doesn't solve the problem directly, but I think this relational way of viewing things uh, it's a good way of thinking about reality in general.
0: You mentioned earlier black holes. So black holes are these, you know, giant, I guess, collapsed stars in, in space yeah. where gravity is so intense that essentially light and even information can't escape a black hole. That's right. And so, so here's something that can't be observed. It can't be observed relative to other things because there's no information. The gravity is keeping the information inside. Does that affect... How is that related to quantum mechanics? And It might not That's, be. But I'm just That's
1: very directly related to quantum mechanics. In fact, uh, my, uh, you know, my true job, my central job, what I've been paid all my life for, um, is to study quantum gravity. So the quantum properties of black holes, the quantum property of gravitational things like, you know, gravitational waves, uh, uh, like space and time, which are which are parts of gravity. Uh, so we need a way of using quantum mechanics to talk about black holes. So if we want to understand what happened inside the black hole or what happened, you know, we sort of know, we believe that black holes slowly shrink, they evaporate. This was a, the greatest uh, uh, theoretical result by Stephen Hawking. Uh, he, he realized that the black hole becomes smaller 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 with time and then become very teeny. And then we don't know what happened because of quantum theory, once again. So we have to we need a way to think about quantum theory of black holes, of space time. And that's, in fact, my current research in physics is all concentrated on what happens to black hole at the end of the of the uh, black hole evaporation. Um, so the this relational perspective about quantum mechanics, which I uh, illustrate in my book, on which I'm working, many others are working, uh, helps there because, uh, um, as you say, uh, the question, what is a black hole by itself, is not a well posed question. Is how it looks to, how it interacts with things. So there's a black hole seen from the outside. There's a black hole seen from the inside, and there's a black hole when it enters itself with this quantum phase that can be described. So all these pieces goes together, and my, my, my own work, its attempt to bring you know the equations, the mathematics, and the conceptual idea needed for doing all this together. That's why I've focused on trying to clarify what what, what quantum quantum gravity, what what quantum mechanics is. In short, uh, I believe that what enters the black hole comes out. At the end of the day, it comes out. Uh, A black hole is not forever. Uh, It shrinks, it becomes small, and inside is a sort of big, big uh, space uh, full of whatever came inside, and then slowly this thing leaks out. So it's not lost the information inside the black hole; it comes out.
0: And so, so uh, you know, it comes out while it's. I guess you're referring to this Hawking radiation, where it's very no, tiny. No, pe- no,
1: no, no! It comes out after. So Hawking hmm. radiation uh, brings out energy, but the information remains trapped inside. And uh, at the end of the operation, the black hole does not disappear. That's the model on which we are working. Uh, it, uh, it it goes through some qu- short. Uh, quantum transition, quantum tunneling, uh, like radiation, right? It's a quantum tunneling, something that escapes from. It, 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 classically, uh, the particle could not escape from the nucleus of the atom, but they do because of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is a liberator of things. Um, so the, the quantum mechanics does the same thing to the black hole. When its throat becomes very small, there's a quantum tunneling, it sort of opens it, and it becomes a white hole. So something from which things come out. And so you have a little remnant there that stays for a very long time, not infinite, but very long, through which slowly all the information inside leaks out.
0: And, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, Einstein and everybody always had a problem unifying classical mechanics and Einstein's theory of relativity and all of his theories with quantum mechanics. And as Einstein famously said, and you write about in the book, he said, God does not play... Uh, does not play dice. And Niels Bohr said, stop telling God what to do. (laughs) I thought it was very funny. But it seems like the way you're conceiving of quantum mechanics in some ways, and I hate to use the word, but in some ways unifies with notions of Einstein's theories of relativity because he's saying that light itself is relative. And you're saying that everything, even these smaller objects like quarks and electrons that were not thought to, follow the laws of classical mechanics, the laws of classical mechanics themselves are relative to observation. So could this be a bridge between classical mechanics and, and quantum mechanics, the idea that both are relative?
1: Yes, and that's how, um, that's how I got interest in this direction. So this reading of uh, quantum theory, uh, which I illustrate in the book on which I'm working, many others are working, uh, it's very Einsteinian. Um, you see, what was Einstein unhappy with? He was un- You're right, he was unhappy with quantum mechanics. Even if he respected quantum mechanics enormously, Heisenberg in the uh, island of Helgoland, got the Nobel Prize uh, for the discovery of quantum mechanics and the, the, the person who uh, proposed Heisenberg for the Nobel Prize is Einstein. So it's not mm. that Einstein thought that quantum mechanics is wrong. He just was not unhappy the way people were understanding it. But what was... He was unhappy because people were talking about the mind, right? The observation, the observer. And I said, what does nature has to know with the fact that somebody observes it? I mean, nature doesn't care if I look at something or not. But nature does care who interacts with whom. So it's not me, the observer. It's, you know, physical things interacting with one another. And that's a very Einsteinian notion. Einstein did the same thing with space and time, right? Relativity is exactly the fact that some properties like velocity are relative and uh, simultaneity is relative. So it's a step more in an Einsteinian direction, this relativity of properties, a strong relativity of properties. And uh, I got into this way of uh, thinking about quantum mechanics because I do quantum gravity, because uh, the the job of my life has been to uh, go ahead in this effort to bring together Einstein revolution with with quantum mechanics. And of course, not because I'm smarter than Einstein or the people of quantum mechanics, because science works cumulatively. So we build on the shoulder of giants, right? And a lot of people, each one puts his own little brick. And then at some point, you know, the arch stays up. Ah, it works. And that's what we're hoping.
0: Is there a way perhaps one could measure the level of relativity an object or particle has? So something is some objects are relative to many other objects yep. and systems and yep. other objects are, are not relative to others. So, so the probabilities go, go up in terms of what positions and measurements can be done. So the larger something is, the more relative it is to other things, the less probability there is, no, no matter what measurement system you're using, the, the less yep. probability is that there'll be unknown outcomes. Whereas the smaller something is, the fewer things it's relative to, so the more different type, different probable outcomes there are, and perhaps that's a unifying mechanism. I'm being, I'm acting really smart, but I'm not. I know nothing. So,
1: <laughs> but yeah, there are there are ways of uh, of uh, trying to measure and quantify, uh, in a sense, the amount of. Quantumness, <laughs> so to say, so the amount of lack of definitiveness, uh, lack of, uh, or, or vice versa, the amount of relative relativity uh, in, in the state of things, and uh, uh, it it uh, it it uh, it requires some mathematics, and uh, but but there's a way of you know defining a quantity that measure that, and and then uh, seeing what are the uh, what are the 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 actual observations that you, you you could measure that in fact one of the uh something that happened in the very last years uh, is an experiment which has been proposed uh in the u k uh exactly to do that to measure the amount of uh, uh quantumness of gravity of space time itself and uh, uh some smart persons in in the in the UK and elsewhere, have been uh, able to guess a way of arranging things so that uh, we can see that space-time itself is quantum. So it's not defined, de- de- definite. It's a sort of like the electron that goes through both holes at the same time. You know, so between two things is one centimeter, but also two centimeters. It's. It, two kind of spaces in between, a superposition between spaces. Like the cat, which Schrodinger's famous cat, which is alive and also dead. So the same can happen to space itself and to time itself. And there the are ways of measuring that this is the case. And I hope in the next years uh, those experiments will be done and will confirm that even space and time itself have these quantum properties.
0: So it's, it seems like there's this constant battle between people saying no science in the universe has there's something has to be absolute like the universe exists in some absolute way and then there's this other side which says no 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 no, everything including the entire structure of space and time are relative to each other and it seems like on one side the the fixed notion might be something like string theory which says everything is composed of these strings that are exactly the same but just vibrate at different vibrations and that's how we objectively create the universe, like is string theory, kind of. Am I describing that correctly? Again, these are all notions that are unfamiliar to me, but I just know I know enough to be dangerous. Is the problem? <laughs>
1: uh, it's you know I, I don't overplay this. Uh, perhaps a little bit, yes. Uh, even if things are more more articulate, more vague, more complicated than that, but uh, um, but there is in science an attitude toward the. Uh, you know, finding fixed points, <laughs> stable structures, uh, uh, and an attitude sort of opposite, uh, uh, which is, science is not about that. It's a more dynamical process uh, in which uh, we don't have the, f- you see, uh, there was one, one, one debate that went on in the last decades. The string theorists uh, t- were hoping to find the final theory. I, I was not in that bunch. uh I never thought that the, the the aim of science should be the final theory. It's like you know, uh, why a discipline should have as aim as dying. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we are any close to a final theory. We are understanding step by step more about the world, but there's so much to be to be understood. So I think it's okay if we don't need we don't need a fixed ground. We don't need. Fixed object with properties. We don't need fundamental string for which everything else uh, uh, comes out. Uh, we, we can view without, we can live without ground. So that's true. In, uh, among scientists, there are those who push in one direction, among pushing the other direction. I am always been fascinated by a a science which is more about discovery and less about knowing for sure.
0: Hmm. Well, let's take this from the micro to the macro what the the big bang is this theory of course that the universe started from some from some infinitesimal point yeah. something happened there was this cosmic inflationary period for trillions of a second or nanoseconds and then galaxies formed and gases formed and all these things could it be that the the big bang itself was some something happened where something became relative to something else And that created a domino effect that created everything. Yeah,
1: look, the current situation is, uh, uh, I would describe it this way. Um, In the 30s, so uh, uh, less than a century ago, we discovered uh, uh, that the universe itself has a sort of story. Okay, so it was not the same a billion years ago, three billion years ago, it changed. And uh, uh, through a remarkable set of observations and calculations and deductions, uh, uh, which was really, is, is a really beautiful, beautiful story to tell, uh, we have reconstructed the history of the universe for uh, 14 billion years. And we're very confident because uh, things were predicted. You know, People said, well, I did a calculation. If you look, you'll see that. And then that was seen. So you, you start to believe these things. Um, so we know what happened in the past. We know with good confidence what happened in the past. And, and as you say, we know that in the past all the galaxies were much closer, more compressed, and you go back in time, back in time. And there was a time which everything was enormously squeezed, enormously hot, enormously um, energetic. The density of energy was enormous. So this is incredible, right? It's far outside, what is inside the sun or anything like that. And, and it's true. We have confidence of that. Now, Question, what happened before that? Answer, we have no idea, okay? So it's not that we have a theory about the Big Bang. We, we, We have a confidence that we came out from there, okay? What happened before, we don't know. And in fact, it could even be that before doesn't make any sense. We don't know. Maybe... Uh, You know, one possibility is that before it makes perfectly sense and there was a big universe that was contracting and became very, very small and bounced it up and we are the bouncing of this universe. That's a possibility. In fact, it's studied by many scientists. The other possibility is that uh, uh, literally that's the beginning of time because time is only things happening relative to one another. To ask what happened before doesn't make any sense. It's like asking what is more north than the northern pole nothing. Just not quite. It's like asking, you know, this house where we live has four rooms, describe me the fifth room. Well, there is no fifth room, so there's nothing to describe. Um, so we don't know. And to know that, we have to understand well quantum theory and we end to understand quantum gravity. So we have exactly to ask the questions which are um, discussed, in my book on quantum theories so and my books on quantum gravity. So the, the, the kind of things that have been my, my, my research work all my life. Uh, I think science is about re, being courageous to say we don't know about many things. And just these are the boundary of our knowledge. They move, boundary of knowledge move faster. I mean, humankind knows much more than when I was born. Incredibly more. Okay. A lot, a lot more. When I was born, nobody really believed there were black holes. Even f- 20 years ago, people didn't believe there were black holes in, in science. So we keep learning step by step. And uh, I think that we'll figure out what happened at the Big Bang 14 billion years ago in, I don't know, maybe in 10 years, 20 years, you'll, you know, our kids will study that at school, like we study, you know, the Washington, George Washington today.
0: So... so uh, it seems like it seems like there are trends in science that have been happening particularly since you know this generation of scientists has been born or or actually for the past several hundred years like for instance science our knowledge of the universe has become less human based so we used to think thousands of years ago that everything revolve, revolved around earth because man's here then we realized oh no this, everything's revolving around the sun but still ever, all the other stars are revolving around the sun because man's here. Then it's like, there's these ga- everything's revolving around the galaxy. Now everything's revolving around clusters of galaxies. And we go further and further out, making humans less and less important. And the other thing that's happening, which I now understand because of your book, is that we we used to think things were fixed and you can't change the laws on things that are fixed. But now as we realize things are, you know, then there was Einstein's theory of relativity, and then now there's this sort of quantum relativity that that you're talking about. What would be the next step in that direction of all things are relative?
1: Well, first of all, you're completely right. And uh, so we have been learning that's our been our experience as humankind. We have been learning that we're, more and more that we're not the center, we're not important, and we have been lo- learning more and more that uh, things are not so fixed as we thought. Uh, things are more flexible. But if you think for a while, uh, yeah. But that's is it the story of each one of us? You know, we were born in a. I mean, at least those of us who were uh, who were lucky in a family with. Uh, um, Structure. When we were kids, we thought, this is it. That's the center of the world. And there are rules. You know, you go to sleep at eight, 9 o'clock, I don't know, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever. Uh, and then you somehow grow up and discover that that's, you, 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 your mom and dad are not the center of the world. <laughs> you are not the center of the world. Uh, a lot of other people. And then you discover, well, wow, it's not just my country the center of the world. There are a lot of other countries. And then there are other ideas, other languages, other ways of thinking the world. So that's just knowledge, learning. Coming out from our egotistic personal vision of things, and to believing that what we are told were the absolute <laughs> rules are the only universal ones, we learn more because that's what humans can do. They learn, they open the mind, they they see things larger. Now you're asking what's going to be next thing that we're going to learn. I don't know. Um, of course, uh, I there are certainly frontiers. Uh, quantum gravity is one frontier, in which we're working, so we're trying to understand better what is space, what is time, at the light of quantum mechanics. Another beautiful frontier which is advancing today is the brain. I think we're going to understand that we as thinking beings are not so much different than a tree or, or a thunderstorm or the sun. Uh so once again, our being special will be a little bit disappointed <laughs> if we think that we have the whole soul. we are special in the universe. Uh, that's at least what many uh, me and many of my colleagues uh, are convinced that is a clear direction in which we're going. Uh, some people, for instance, think that there are the universes uh, similar to other ones. By universe, I mean this 14 billion years expanding thing. I'm not convinced that there are the universe. I don't see strong evidence for that, but that's a possibility. I mean, what do I know? Um, You know, I could say, well, things should be this and that, and Niels Bohr could come to me and say, don't tell God what what to do. eh? (laughs) Don't tell nature what to do. Nature has more imagination than us, no doubt.
0: Well, well, what's the difference, for instance, between quantum gravity and gravity? Because this is, obviously, this is a new formulation of gravity that's, changing the way we think of it. What, what is quantum gravity?
1: Gravity, it's uh, uh, the law that we've all a little bit studied at schools, so which things attract one another, things fall down, and you know, the moon is attracted by the earth, the earth is attracted by the sun. And uh, the discovery of, uh, of Einstein, uh, the, the great theory of Einstein, general relativity, is the discovery that gravity has to do with the shape of space and, and, and time itself. Gravity is really the how flexible are clocks of going faster and slower and, and, and the length of being squeezed and stretched the space in which we live is really like an elastic thing that can stretch know and and the the result of the stretching this different speed at which the clock go is exactly yeah. the falling of object and, 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 and gravity so Einstein has discovered that gravity is is, is the shape of space time so to say, but all this ignores quantum mechanics completely so if you want the two great discoveries of last century in physics, which are Einstein relativity and quantum mechanics. Uh, and, you know, my, my, my two last books, Helgoland, is about quantum mechanics and The Order of Time, which I wrote before a couple of years ago, it's it's about all about relativity, essentially, uh, mostly about relativity, Einstein ideas. Um, so we have made these great steps in understanding nature, but they're really not yet uh Coherent. And uh, what is missing is understanding the quantum properties of gravity. So the quantum properties of space-time. And this is needed to understand what happened in a black hole, what happened in the early universe. Uh, today, if you study physics, and I say that in the seven brief lessons of physics, if you're a student of physics and you, you know you follow classes at some point you start thinking that your, your teachers are, are, are idiots so don't talk to one another because uh, in the morning you have general relativity classes that give you a picture of the world. In the afternoon you have a quantum mechanics or quantum for class that gives you a completely different picture of the world. They're not coherent, they don't work together. If one is right, that is wrong. Uh, so in our current knowledge, there is a remarkable uh, gap, which is to bring together these fantastic discoveries we have uh, made into something coherent. And until we do that, we don't, we're not going to know what happened 14 billion years ago. We're not going to know what happened inside the black holes and this kind of things. So we're not going to know what really space-time is because space and time are, have quantum properties that we haven't understood yet. So that's the problem of quantum gravity.
0: So wait, so the problem of quantum gravity is, is I to still do, don't understand.
1: Is to, do, to write a quantum theory of space-time or if you want, off gravity, which is the same thing. We don't have this theory yet. I have a theory. Other people have other theories. There are not many. There are some theories around, the way which I'm working. Other people have built up together with me and other. It's called loop quantum gravity. Um, it's, a, it's a specific theory of quantum gravity. It's a tentative theory of quantum gravity because we're not sure it's correct yet. It's alternative to string theory. It doesn't need strings at all. Doesn't need high dimension or supersymmetry or anything like that, and it is a. It, if you want, it using your words before, it brings together this relational aspect of quantum mechanics, with the relational
0: aspect of Einstein. Okay, so so I should win a Nobel Prize because I'm I'm trying to quantify how to define relative things that are relative to each other. <laughs> That's correct. I'm going to start working on it.
1: <laughs> That's correct.
0: <laughs> so, so why did you start writing? You know, it's not common that scientists write popular science books. In fact, it's often looked down upon in, in the scientific industry. Why you, you've written such beautiful books and, and you know, the se- seven brief lessons on physics outsold Fifty Shades of Grey in Italy. It's <laughs> an amazing thing that, that people, that, that would happen. Uh, why do you do this? It just came by
1: itself. I never really decided that. I started very late in life to write popular books. I had the desire of, you know, science is fantastic. It's beautiful. Once you look into it, it's just incredibly beautiful. So when you are in love with something, you want to share somehow. You want to tell people, look, how good it is. Or, you know, tell people, do you want to take a look? It's, It's really fantastic. You know, space is not space anymore. Time is not time anymore. Things are not things anymore uh reality is really different than what you thought it is uh, there is some beauty there, and also there is something important for for the way we look at the world so uh, i th- I started reading uh, writing and uh, to my surprise um, many people are interested in in listening to that and i um I don't try. My, 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 my public is not the typical, you know, uh, science nerd who wants to know all the details about the science. It's the opposite. It's either scientists who want to look at perspective and interest in ideas, or large public who just want to get the core of the idea, not all the details. So I I have a double audience in mind: my colleagues and the, and the large public. Really, you know, the the the. the uh, the prototypical grandmother of mine, who doesn't know anything, and uh, you know, opens a seven-level. Just read and say, "Wow, I I see something I didn't know about that, and this is uh, this is beautiful and surprising." So I try to take away all the possible details and zoom on what seems to me the core idea, the core thing we have discovered, right? We've discovered that the sun goes or the, the Earth goes around the sun and rotates in itself. That's you can say in one two lines you can say, the greatest revolution by Copernicus. Um, Of course, Copernicus did much more than that. It's a thick book full of equations and details and arguments and blah, blah. But the core idea, you can take it out. I try to do the same for what is possible, with the core idea of Einstein's theory of quantum mechanics. And I do it, of course, from the perspective that seems more, more comprehensible to me. I've spent my life working on these things, so I I view things from from a perspective of somebody who is in all these uh, questions, and I give my own perspective on these things.
0: Well, it, and it's really interesting because this book Helgoland, which just came out, you really you really talk about quantum mechanics and ultimately reach your conclusions in in a traditional arc of the hero, the the, the journey of the hero. You have Heisenberg grappling with this very difficult problem, and then he, you know there's a call to action, which is his first theories on quantum mechanics in his first paper. And then he meets um, his compatriots, his comrades who help him, you know, develop the theory further and and, and start spreading his message. But then he has his enemies, the people who reject, (laughs) and problems that result, the people who reject quantum mechanics and throw problems and questions in his path. And then ultimately, you know, the story, you know, the, the hero, which is kind of the, the main scientist of quantum mechanics, they come back to tell the tale. You come back and you tell the tale. So it has this great arc of the hero in the story and the history of quantum mechanics, which is why for me, someone who doesn't know anything, I'm able to learn so much just from reading this story, from, from this history of this inconceivably hard science to understand. I'm able to at least have a bullshit discussion with you about it like as if i understand it
1: <laughs> thank you it's it's a beautiful description but it is exactly what happened look this heisenberg was 23 when he went to the island you know, to, 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 to fight with a dragon alone there. And he had this incredible idea. And this the, the beginning is like a romantic story in which this young kid uh, alone in a, in a windswept island, and he, he worked deep in the night and then climbs a rock and waits the sunshine to come out. And then the theory was put together by him and Pauli and Dirac and Jordan. They were all in the 20s. The absolutely radical revolutionary young kids Uh, With ideas, uh, uh, the beginning theory was called um, "Cluben Physics" in German, the the, the boys' physics, because of boys (laughs) in the Hmm. twenties. And they have changed the world. I mean, you think you you think um, a great movie on that? They have changed the way we see the world.
0: This you should write a script for this. Someone should buy the uh, the rights to this. Is that that is a great idea? (laughs) Do you think it's true that the greatest scientific you have to be young to come up with a great scientific discovery?
1: Um, most great scientists, not all. So, you know, there were some old people who <laughs> did some remarkable good people, but it's a minority. The 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 most uh, really major ideas uh, uh, were done by scientists who were young, uh, knowledgeable, very 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 learned. So, young kids who were immersed in a problem, but. Uh, uh, but very young, Einstein was very young. He also, was twenty-five when he did relativity, and Newton, when he got, he published later, but his main idea, he was, is, he got it very early. Um, you need the courage of the youth to make uh, a big job, and they were all people who opened up the mind. Right? Think about Darwin. Darwin changed our view of humankind with his uh, his, his discoveries. He got on a boat and went around the world with his boat for for two years. Um, uh, Meeting new people, new landscape, new everything, and realizing that, you know, the world is larger and full of things and trying to put order. He came out with uh, uh, extraordinary discoveries. Heisenberg got to this solitary island with books of philosophy, books of poetry. He was reading poetry, Goethe. Go to love for Islam in the, in, uh, the poetry, the, the Eastern Western Divan book. So you need to be young, open, learned, uh, and uh, to be, to do great discoveries. Of course, you know, there are a lot of young, open, super intelligent kids that don't do great discoveries, but that's fine also.
0: But do you think it's because of the structure of the brain when we're young? Or do you think it's because when we're older, we have more responsibilities? We have, you know, mortgages to pay, kids to raise and, and so on. Do you think it's a difference in lifestyle between the young and the old, or is it a difference in the brain between the young and the old?
1: I don't know. If I had to guess, it's a difference in the brain. And uh, let me put it this way. Uh, I'm old. (laughs) in this. I'm certainly not 20. I'm very old, with respect to that. I think old people are more stupid. Now, to be be fair, it's also true, like old people like to say, that they're more wise. So they know so many things that often... uh, uh, they take wiser decisions. Young young kids are notorious for taking unwise decisions. Adolescents take very unwise decisions. So um, being young is risky, and you take unwise decisions. But you know, to do science, sometimes you have to take to, to, to risk, take risks, and to go where nobody else has gone. And when you go where nobody else has gone, that's certainly something that uh, Einstein, Heisenberg, Newton did. Uh, then. A lot of people go in places where nobody else has gone and just get eaten by a tiger but some of them come back with a bag of gold and that it is these are the ones we remember the ones who have come back with a bag of gold
0: well Carlo Rovelli author of the excellent book Helgoland and the subtitle is making sense of the quantum revolution Uh, it's so informative and I I learned so much from reading the book and then from talking to you. It's always great to have a podcast because I get to read the book and then whatever questions I have about the book, I get to have the author on a world famous scientist and just ask whatever questions I want. And you're kind of, you feel obligated to answer them. So it's great. I could just say the weirdest things and then you'll have to take them seriously uh, and and answer it. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you spending your time and, and, uh, being nice to me and 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 answering these questions. And I'm going to close, actually. You you, you have a quote in the book, which is actually a quote from Douglas Adams, which I, and I just love this quote. It comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And you mentioned this quote. Douglas Adams says, the fact that we live at the bottom of a deep gravity well on the surface of a gas-covered planet going around a nuclear fireball 90 million miles away and think this to be normal is obviously some indication of how skewed our perspective tends to be. And it really is all about perspective is the ultimate conclusion and I, I appreciate this book and I'm so happy you came on the podcast. So thank you so very much and everybody should read this book, Helgoland.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it, it was a very nice conversation.